Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to have you here. It's great to be back on this episode number 62. Thank you again. Uh, Today we're going to be talking some more about uh, Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Going to be covering some letters from him. Hope you enjoyed that previous episode, talking a little bit more about the shadow of the empire, keeping up with the the dictators of the world. This does seem to be a, a very common problem in the modern world today, rather than the rest of the world rushing to catch up with the Bill of Rights and the Declaration of Independence, which, by the way, did happen in times past, the modern world is urging and clamoring and practically begging the United States to catch up with tyranny and to basically run in the opposite direction away from the Bill of Rights. It's it's quite a striking contrast uh, that we find ourselves in today. Rather disturbing, too. And it goes to show you just how quickly these things can turn around. It really happened without very many people even noticing that it was happening. And you can you can do great damage to what the Founding Fathers actually accomplished, and not just them, but the people after them. There, there, were, there were many accomplishments, accomplishments made in the direction of freedom and liberty after the Founding Fathers were gone that subsequent generations did, that can be greatly compromised by this sudden rush away from the Bill of Rights of the United States. And obviously this is something that you want to be aware of, because if you're not aware of it, then you're just another one of those blissfully ignorant people wandering around in society with absolutely no concept whatsoever which direction the world is going in. You know, like those people too lost in their Netflix account to be able to pay attention to anything. You don't want to be one of those people. I I certainly caution everybody against being one of those folks. So, in that endeavor, we continue our march down the path of education and the Founding Fathers, And we're going to listen to Dr. Benjamin Franklin speak to us today. Benjamin Franklin is going to be our guest on the podcast, and we're going to go directly to that work right now. All right. Well, who better than Dr. Franklin to teach us the uh, lessons of the relationship between people and government and between government and people. Dr. Franklin is a very educated man in that regard, uh, the old wise man from the Founding Fathers, and it would do us well to listen to the advice of Dr. Franklin. So let's go ahead and do that. Let's have some fun with Mr. Franklin and enjoy some of his finer points of wisdom. We're going to read a letter from Dr. Benjamin Franklin to a Thomas Cushing written on the 6th of October, 1774, and this is going to be from London. Dr. Franklin is still in London. Uh, Shout out to our friends in Great Britain today who may be listening to this podcast, and all of our friends in Europe for that matter. Uh, Dr. Franklin did spend quite a bit of time in Europe, and he, uh, I think he, I think he enjoyed himself to a certain extent in, in London and in France by, yeah, according to some of the things that I read while he was there, some of the letters that he wrote uh, to various people, uh, perhaps there was some element of it he didn't like. He spent a great deal of time over there, really. I mean, and it, for, for this period of time, I mean, it was uh, he spent a lot of time working abroad and being away from his uh, 
his country, so to speak, the United States, or the colonies originally. So here we go. Quote, Since my last to you, which went per Captain Folger, the Parliament, by a sudden and unexpected resolution in the Cabinet, has been dissolved. Various are the conjectures as to the motives, among which one is that some advices from Boston, importing the impossibility of carrying on government there under the late Acts of Parliament, have made it appear necessary that a new election should be got through before any ferment arises among the manufacturers, which, if it happened during the elections, would probably have been a means of outing many of the court candidates. As yet, it does not appear that there is any intention of changing measures, but all intelligent men are of opinion that if the American Congress should resolve on the non-consumption of the manufacturers of Britain, this ministry must go out and their late measures be all reversed, as such a resolution firmly adhered to would be in a peaceable and justifiable way do everything for us that we can wish. I am grieved to hear of mobs and violence, and the pulling down of houses which our friends cannot justify, and which give great advantage against us to our enemies. End quote. Interesting here. He's, um, so, so Parliament has been dissolved, as he, as he calls it, uh, pending new election. And it was done early. And it's, it's generally understood by myself that it was dissolved about a year earlier than it should have been. A year earlier than otherwise would have happened. And this was thought to be some attempt to slow or impede opposition to the intolerable acts or other measures yet taken. So they're trying to do an end run around some of the outrage that may result from this conflict this peaceful conflict of sorts between Great Britain and the colonies, which includes non-importation, non-consumption, as we talked about previously. Uh, effectively, something resembling what we would call a boycott today of British goods. This could hurt British merchants. British mer merchants may get very upset and may apply pressure to the Parliament to repeal the acts. The central power, perhaps, being concerned about this and its impact on Parliament wanting to maintain its tyranny, decided, well, what the hey, why don't we just dissolve the parliament? Very interesting. You know, these elected bodies, these parliaments, these legislatures, uh, like the United States Congress, can react to these negative forces happening outside of government and in the general population, and subvert, in some ways, the tyranny of the central power in order to maintain some sense of stability amongst the people, or between the people in the parliament, or between the people in the congress, because they have elections to, uh, to adhere to. They have to be responsible to the people in some regard. Now, the, the greatest hope of any congress or any legislature or parliament is that the people main t remain blissfully ignorant to what's going on. The, you, you'll, you'll, you'll observe if you study history, and honestly, if you just study the present day for about 10 minutes or so, I mean, or maybe a little longer than that, but you spend a little bit of time focusing on what parliaments do and what the United States Congress does, you'll find out very quickly, at least I did, that these bodies, these legislative bodies, benefit greatly from an uninformed, uneducated, stupid population of people. They, they, they tend to like that because they can get away with a lot more. But when these big outrages happen that really gin up the, uh, the entire, a large portion of the population anyway, perhaps a majority of the population, into some kind of uh, anger over a particular policy, 
they really have to move at that point to try to do something about it, whether it's a half measure or whether it's something serious. Now, you hope that they do the right thing and they don't react with more tyranny, which sometimes they do. Oftentimes, if the if you can get the people emotional about something, if you can get people worked up emotionally about something specific, uh, a specific event or a specific policy act, Congress is very intelligent, They or Parliament for that matter. They can leverage that to actually increase the tyranny on the people. Uh, there are times when people, without really knowing it, and sometimes with knowing it, they, they practically beg for the iron hand of tyranny to descend upon the population. And th that's what they would call useful idiots. It's happened before. It will happen again. It's, a, it's one of those things in history you have to be aware of because it repeats itself over and over and over again. And like I've said before, those, those statements like history repeats itself and those who do not understand history are doomed to repeat it, those are warnings from history. They're not just casual catchphrases that history students in high school need to know about, you know, just because this is what we learn in, in school. They're, they're warnings. They're cautionary tales of history. You know, that, that, you know, that person who originally came up with that phrase, history repeats itself, and who knows who that was? It was probably somebody 5,000 years ago. But the person who originally came up with that was probably somebody who was suffering greatly at the hands of something in history that repeated itself. But, you know, this, this act of the central power to disband the, uh, the parliament is straight out of the the tyrannical textbook, so to speak. It's basically trying to manipulate the legislature the, the makeup of the legislature, the organization of the legislature, the independent nature of the legislature to, uh, assuming the parliament is independent in, in Great Britain at this time, which it's not, not really. But it's trying to manipulate that to appease, you know, whatever dictates the tyrant wants to hand down. The central power often tries to manipulate the, the legislature. This is a, a, this is a common thing. Not, not altogether unexpected during this period of time as tyranny is on the march. And interesting, this last part here, quote, I am grieved to hear of mobs and violence and the pulling down of houses, which our friends cannot justify, which give great advantage against our own enemies, end quote. I believe he's referring to, I mean, we, we talked about the Boston Tea Party. He's talking about other things, too. But it's this kind of thing, these kind of, these reactionary things that result in the destruction of property and or violence. Dr. Franklin does not like hearing about this. He would much rather listen to the more sensible reaction, which is the Congress. The Congress in Philadelphia is that logical response and peaceful response to the tyranny that is being levied against the colonies. And he's very much right that the mobs and the violence and the pulling down of houses and all that is, is unnecessary. It's not necessary to do these kinds of things when you have this Congress that is in action. And they're, they're in, as slow as it may be, as lethargic as it may be in some cases, it is moving in a particular direction. And it does mean to unite the whole of the colonies in opposition to this tyranny, which is a good thing. And, you know, I wish our, our Congress today would always continue in the tradition of the Congress of 1774-75 and always stand in opposition to tyranny and represent the people in freedom and liberty. Unfortunately, uh, most of the people in the United States Congress today are there for their own personal reasons. They're there for their own wealth. They're there for their own corruption. They're there for their own greed. 
their own ambition. They're not there because they read a history book and they saw that the United States Congress stood in opposition to tyranny and they wanted to do the same thing. That's not why most of them are there. So please be aware of that. And when you um, when you think about the Congress today, and part of the reason why I spend time talking about this, I, I, I haven't mentioned this in some time. Very early on in the podcast, I would I would I, I mentioned that I would talk about Congress today versus Congress of yesteryear, seventeen seventy four to seventy five, so that you would know that when I say the word Congress in in the context of seventy four seventy five, this is a very different institution. I don't want anybody out there to get the idea that the Congress of seventy four seventy five in the seventeen hundreds that is is the same as the Congress today. It's not. So what you have to do is when we talk about this Congress back during Benjamin Franklin's time, don't keep in mind the politicians of today or what they do today, because you're, you're not going to have an accurate picture in your mind of what, the, of what the Congress was in 1774. You're just not. So you really have to understand the differences between the people. Like I, men- I mentioned a number of episodes, this is quite a long time ago now in the podcast, but I mentioned that the, co- the United States Congress today is much more similar to the British Parliament of 1774-75 than it is to the United States Congress, excuse me, the Colonial Congress, the Continental Congress of 1774-75. It's much, much closer to the British Parliament. In, the, in what it does and how it feels about everything and the way it reacts to things and so on and so forth. That's just the way it is. And if you don't like me saying that, well, then that's fine. You can you can hit the bricks and move on with your life and not listen to this podcast. Because on this podcast, I'm all about the truth and I'm all about real history. I'm not about fake history. Uh, fake history is really designed to appeal to the uh, baser instincts of people who do not want to be educated. And I'm sorry for that. I, I, it really is a um, a sad commentary in the history of the world that that is the case. But that's been, it's been true for 10,000 years. There's always been people like that. And so the rest of us will stay here on this podcast and actually listen to some real history and some real context like, like that which I just provided. And I'm sure half of you at least are probably aware of that already. I just I had to I had to mention again that context about the differences between the, the Congress of today versus the Congress of yesteryear so that some some new folks in the podcast who may not have listened to the library of episodes yet can understand where we're coming from. Let's continue on. Quote The electors of the cities of London and Westminster, the borough of Southwark, the county of Middlesex, and some other places have exacted of their candidates engagements under their hands that they will, among other things, endeavor a repeal of the late iniquitous acts against America. And tis supposed the example of the metropolis will be followed in other places, and would have been nearly general if the election had not been thus precipitated, end quote. And this is, again, the fear that the allies of the colonies may undo the work of the intolerable acts Thus, the changing up of the parliament suddenly. So the, the colonies do have some allies in the parliament. And in we've talked about that before. In London and in Britain, generally speaking, Benjamin Franklin has spoken about it. Mr. Dilly, who was corresponding with Mr. Adams, had talked about it. And they're, they're at work trying to undo these things, trying to gather support. And all the while, the central power is there in the background trying to prevent that from happening, trying to undo that. More Well, more specifically, just trying to uh, undo this energy that's being built to 
go against the intolerable acts. Because, again, here we are clearly, and, and the, the central power wouldn't do that unless they really, really wanted the intolerable acts in place. Uh, they don't want to budge on this issue. And this would be, you know, the central power interfering in a legitimately elected parliament, uh, like today, you know, a legitimately elected parliament or a congress, uh, to affect some greater tyranny that is underway. And I must say, this shouldn't be surprising to any of us. This is what the, this is what central powers do. This is why it's always been so dangerous to aggregate power in the central authority. Uh, the, I spoke about that before. The reason why the office of the President of the United States was originally intended to be specifically focused, not necessarily internally, but more external than anything else. That's why he's the commander-in-chief of the military in part, because there's obviously a strong national security focus to the President of the United States. It's his job. Uh, his job is not as domestic as it has become. It wasn't intended to be that way. It wasn't intended to be this manager of sorts who goes around micromanaging every stupid little thing in the country. And there's a reason for that. Because, you know, the Founding Fathers watched this happen. They observed a king of Great Britain doing that very thing, trying to micromanage all these stupid little things in the colonies and trying to gobble up power for himself so that he could enrich himself, so that he could enrich the British Empire and do it by taking away the rights of the people. That's why, uh, you know, a central authority that has a lot of power is just, it's hard for it to not just turn evil at some point. It, it, it almost inevitably ends that way. So you have to have some control on the central power and tell them, you know, not to, tell them, you know, very specifically, this is what you can do, and this is what you must never do, which again, we get back to the Bill of Rights. That's in part why the Bill of Rights are there, is to help remind the potential tyrant that you can't do this. This thing called freedom of speech and freedom of religion, you can't touch that. So don't try. And it's also communication with the rest of the country that if the central power does try to attack that Bill of Rights, then you have just cause for rebellion. Let me say that one more time loud and clear. The whole, One of the primary purposes of the Bill of Rights is to draw a line in the sand. And if the central power crosses that line, if the tyrant crosses that line, then you have just cause to rebel. It's a way of writing down on paper that thing which people naturally know, that there are certain rights inalienable and must never be infringed. And it's not just life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's these ten rights that are articulated in those amendments to the Constitution of the United States. And the Declaration of Independence says this very directly, and it's implied in the Constitution that if that line is crossed, rebellion is necessary. Now, some people don't like to hear that. Some people don't like to say it because they, it's, it's not politically correct. It, makes, it, it, it doesn't make people feel warm and fuzzy inside, which again is why most people in the United States or elsewhere, for that matter, will never listen to this podcast for any length of time. Because it challenges the politically correct, it challenges this notion of, I want to feel warm and fuzzy inside, wrap myself up in a warm blanket, and watch Netflix all day long. It's, it's, it, it, really, it really goes against that, and really just goes right back to what the Founding Fathers were living with every day. This tyrant, King George III, in the central power, was violating their constitution, was violating what they believed to be effectively their Bill of Rights, their natural rights, their ancient rights. And so they felt it justified, a rebellion, at some point. Now, obviously, they didn't do that right away, because they were trying to appeal to the logic and reason of King George III. 
Now, unfortunately, that man was power hungry. He was drunk on power. And like I said before, I wish there was a way that we could talk to tyrants and say, hey, you know, you're drunk on power. You need to go to rehab. I wish there was a rehab for tyrants who were drunk on power, like a 12-step program. Unfortunately, there isn't one. The Founding Fathers figured, out, figured that out the hard way. You know, the, the, United, the Congress at this time was very much a means of trying to accomplish exactly that. It was trying to tell the drunk-on-power King George III that, hey, you're drunk, you're drunk on power, you need to go to rehab. You need to 12-step this thing. And King George III wasn't having any of it. And unfortunately, that eventually led to a great conflict. But it's hard. It's hard to tell the central power that they're drunk on power and they need to go to rehab. Because, you know, an alcoholic never wants to admit that they're an alcoholic, really, right? I mean, you have to you have to really admit that. That's the first step, I, I, I suppose, is to just admit that you have a problem. But how many times do alcoholics just refuse that, to, to acknowledge that there's a problem? Well, well, you know, tyrants are the same. They're, it's the same kind of thing. It's the same mindset at play there. They don't want to admit it. They don't want to acknowledge it. King George III, drunk on power. Sad to say, but he was. I wish the opposite were true. But unfortunately, history is what it is. Let's continue, quote, And when the result of the Congress arrives, and the measures they resolve to pursue come to be known and considered here, I am persuaded our friends will be multiplied and our enemies diminished, so as to bring an accommodation in which our undoubted rights shall be acknowledged and established. This, for the common welfare of the British Empire, I most ardently wish. But I am in perpetual anxiety lest the mad measures of mixing soldiers among people whose minds are in such a state of irritation may be attended with some sudden mischief. For an accidental quarrel, a personal insult, an imprudent order, an insolent execution of even a prudent one, or twenty other things may produce a tumult unforeseen and therefore impossible to be prevented in which such a carnage may ensue as to make a breach that can never afterwards be healed. I pray God to govern everything for the best, and am with the greatest esteem and respect, sir, your most obedient and humble servant, Benjamin Franklin. End quote. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of feeling in this particular paragraph. So he, again, he starts off optimistic, and he ends very concerned because of this thing that has been set in motion. He's optimistic that, you know, once the Congress does its work, there will be some help given to the friends of the colonies in Britain. It'll, be, it'll provide some energy for momentum, for some success in repealing the late acts of Parliament, that is to say, the intolerable acts of 1774. And I, I like his optimism. I really do. I know it's wrong. I mean, I know eventually it doesn't turn out to be that way, but I like that he's optimistic about that. I like that he's trying I like that he wants to endeavor a repair of this relationship between the British Empire and the colonies, which are effectively one and the same. But later he ends concerned, quote, But I am in perpetual anxiety, lest the mad measures of mixing soldiers among a people whose minds are in such a state of irritation may be attended with sudden, sudden mischief, end quote. So this is a reference, obviously, to the soldiers that were dispatched to the colonies, uh, in large measure to Boston. This would be that standing army that the Founding Fathers were so concerned about, and that we should be concerned about today, because things don't change. Not really. Uh, governments do what governments do. That's been true for 10,000 years, and it's never going to change. And if you think government is different today than it was 10,000 years ago, I got a bridge to sell you. 
because it never changes. Because those basic emotions, those those things that drive people, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Whoever came up with that phrase, probably another phrase from 5,000 years ago in various forms. I'm sure there's somebody attributable to that quote. Lord knows who, but you got to imagine that that quote has been bandied about for probably close to 5,000 years or more, in some form or another. The guy who probably originally came up with that quote was probably some political prisoner somewhere who was being tortured to death by a tyrant. I'm just ballparking it, but that's probably the general idea. Um, People who come up with these quotes are usually people who suffered greatly at the hands of whatever reality it was that they were trying to articulate by way of the quote. And it would do us well to listen to those people so that their suffering from 5,000 years ago is not meaningless. It, it informs our experience today. And that is what we do when we study history, folks. We, uh, we pay respect to the people who came before us and suffered greatly as a result of the god-awful things that they had to endure, including the Founding Fathers, who suffered greatly. I'll say that again for all those folks out there who may be shocked. I mean, there's going to be one or two people who listen to this podcast who are going to be like, Oh my gosh, Roman, what are you saying? Are you saying that the Founding Fathers, these rich farmers and lawyers, are you saying that they actually suffered during the Revolutionary War? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, in varying degrees. And not all of them suffered greatly, but some of them surely did. Some of them were, were killed, and some of them were nearly killed, and some of them had family members who were killed. It wasn't a pleasant time. But, you know, this, 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 this concept of the standing army being mixed amongst this irritated population, Benjamin Franklin is articulating here the exact same kind of thing that John Adams was talking about. When we, we read in his letters, he was concerned about what he called a rupture with the soldiers, uh, a rupture being some kind of a conflict. Benjamin Franklin's concerned about the exact same thing, and for good reason. And it turns out that the thing that they feared most is exactly what ended up happening, this rupture with the soldiers. So, you know, for all the talk of, you know, people being paranoid, you know, when when, when the central power does something that's dangerous, like in this case, it's sending soldiers out amongst the people, but it could be 500 other things. And there's always this population of people out there that say, oh, this is a bad idea. You can't do this. This is dangerous. And then there's another group of people that says, oh, you're just being over, you're overreacting. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. You got to imagine there was a population of people in the colonies at this time that said, oh, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You're overreacting. You people don't know what you're talking about. The central power, they may be doing something, you know, foolish, but, you know, the soldiers, it's really just much ado about nothing. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. I I don't know whether those people are just stupid, in denial, or just lying. It's, It's one of the three. They're either stupid, in denial, or they're lying. And that's usually the case with that that particular group of folks. Just FYI. Generally, in regard to, you know, these tyrannical things that the central power does, like impose tyranny on people. Now, we're going to continue on with another letter from Dr. Franklin. This letter is going to be written to a Joseph Galloway on October the 12th of 1774. And it's going to be about uh, a very very similar topic. Same, same kind of thing. But a little bit more perspective. We're going we're gonna to widen the view a little bit. Quote, These circumstances show that the American cause begins to be more popular here, yet the court talk boldly of persisting in their measures, and three ships of the line are fitting out for America, which are to be overmanned and have a double number of marines and several armed tenders. It is rumored that they are to stop all the ports of America. Many think the new parliament will be for reversing the proceedings, but that depends on the court on which every parliament seems to be dependent. 
So much so that I begin to think a parliament here of little use to the people. For since a parliament is always to do as a ministry would have it, why should we not be governed by the ministry in the first instance? They could afford to govern us cheaper, the parliament being a very expensive machine that requires a vast deal of oiling and greasing at the people's charge, for they finally pay all the enormous salaries of places, the pensions, and the bribes, now by custom become necessary to induce the members to vote according to their consciences, end quote. Whoo, boy. Benjamin Franklin is on to something here, isn't he? Benjamin Franklin, in his genius, has stumbled into something that, frankly speaking, people all over the world have a very hard time coming to grips with, which causes more problems than just about anything in the world today. And I, I mean that seriously. This is one of the biggest problems the world faces today. This inability to identify reality within whatever it is that they describe as democracy. I'll pick this apart with you, and some of you folks know exactly where I'm going with this. Some of you may be newer to the podcast, which is fantastic, and you may not know where I'm going with this, which is kind of fun. We will, we will endeavor to uh, go through this a piece at a time. First off... Notice the intent of the central power here in reaction to opposition to the intolerable acts. Because, I mean, Benjamin Franklin knows about the Congress at this point, which means everybody in Britain knows about the Congress, including King George III. And what is his reaction? Quote, Three ships of the line are fitting out for America, which are to be overmanned and have a doubled number of Marines and several armed tenders. It is rumored they are to stop all the ports of America, end quote. That's King George III's reaction, to dispatch military, regular soldiers, to confront British subjects. It was always going to be violence with King George III, wasn't it? It may not have seemed that way in the beginning. Oftentimes, the central power—pay very close attention to what I'm about ready to say. Oftentimes, the central power will start off doing things that seem illogical, imprudent, nonsensical, that cause some great harm to a group of people. And some folks may think that central power misguided or uninformed in some particular kind of way. But in reality, they know exactly what they're doing. And the end result is always going to be violence against the people. Just like here. This violence was planned. It was intended. It was always going to be the result of any opposition to these measures. This is not an accident. This rupture with the troops was not an accident. It happened deliberately as a result of orders handed down from King George III to his commanding generals to his soldiers in the field. Every step along the way, this violence was intentional. People were killed deliberately by order of the central power, because the central power did not care about people's lives. It cared about its own power and greed and corruption. And if you think it can't happen today, you're wrong. What is different about today? I, I, I'll never understand this for the life of me. What is different about today that makes everything so much better than it was in 1775? What is it exactly? Because we're more civilized and sophisticated? More, well, more and more educated population than we were before? We, we understand the finer nuances of government and we're more peaceable. We're a more civilized society. Really? Have you looked at how society behaves recently? I mean, just out of curiosity, what do you think the crime rate was in 1774-75 in the colonies compared to today? You think it was? You think it was worse, or you think it was better? I mean, if I were a betting man, and I, I'm not, but if I were, I would say it's better. 
back then than it is today. Because back then, these people knew how to dispense justice. And they, they, didn't, they didn't mince words when they did it. They took things a little bit more seriously than we do today. Which explains a lot, by the way. A lot of folks today would have a very hard time living in 1774 because these were hard times. And oftentimes, justice was uh, handed down swiftly after a trial, of course. You know, these people believed in trial by jury and all the rest of it. But they, they, didn't, they didn't dance around it quite as much as we do today. Why, so why do people think, you know, these, everything is so much better today? Like, like the central, the central authority that the government and everything else, it can't be corrupted like it was back in 75. Why is that? Why is it people think these terrible things that happened in 1774, 75 can't happen today? I have no idea. Because we're certainly not a more civilized society. We're not. We're a little bit more foolish, a little bit less educated, actually. Because, again, I mean, the Founding Fathers were students of history. We've established that. I mean, John Adams could wax philosophical about history, everything from the Greeks through the Romans and beyond, better than 99% of the American population could today. And he was very limited in his access to knowledge. I mean, he had to actually go buy books, which was quite an expensive proposition back in this time. And he had to read those books. You know, and then there's people today who can't be pried away from their Netflix account long enough to actually crack open a book. So, you know, these these dark these dark things that happened back in the day, they're very they could very easily happen again today. Uh, if if for no other reason than people are just uninformed about how dangerous these things truly are. Uh, this these central powers, these central authorities, and the things that they do. Oftentimes, people like to think that they're not nefarious in nature, that they're well intentioned, but in reality, they can be nefarious. They're not well-intentioned some of the time. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. So pay attention to that. Now, he starts to break down the structure of government in here, which I find fascinating. It, Benjamin Franklin, a lot of people might read through this and just kind of skip over and go, oh, okay, well, that's lovely. Thank you for your opinion, Dr. Franklin. I'm moving on to the next letter. But stop and think about this, because he's he's giving us a window into how he, how, how he saw Parliament at this time. And this is a man who would know. This is not some headquarters hero desk jockey writing from the colonies back in Boston or Philadelphia. This is a man who was in London. This is a man who we know is brilliant. He has connections. He knows people. He, he mingles with people a lot. He understands all of the connections within Parliament and, and their various connections to the central authority. This is a man who knows what he's talking about. This is not an idiot. Now, I would understand. There's a reason why I selected this letter for this purpose. There, Because if I was reading a letter about this written by somebody in the colonies, you could easily write it off as somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. They're not in London. They don't know. But this man is in London. And if anybody is smart enough to capture this, this basic concept, it's Benjamin Franklin. So if you try to write off what Benjamin Franklin is telling us here in this paragraph, you're doing yourself a disservice. So let's read into this. Quote, many think the new parliament will be for reversing the proceedings, but that depends on the court on which every parliament seems to be dependent. End quote. Now, when he says the court, that's to mean uh, the court of King George III. Not the court as in like what we think of as in the Supreme Court, the judiciary today. That's not what he's talking about. He means the central power, the central authority, King George III. So the, he's basically saying the parliament is, is dependent upon the central power. This is dangerous. This is why we have separation of powers in the United States of America. The, par, the, the legislature is supposed to be very, very separate from the central authority, the president of the United States. Now, it doesn't work anymore. Oh my gosh, Roman. Did you just say that the, the separation of powers in this country no longer works? That, yep, that's exactly what I just said. Now, what do I mean by that? 
I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to let you think about it. Why in the world doesn't it work anymore? I want you to think about it, and in, in the next, next episode, maybe a few episodes, I'm going to answer that question. But I'm not going to answer it here today. I'm just going to let you stew on it, and I'm going to let you come to a conclusion on your own, perhaps, as to why it is. And, and you know, you may disagree with me. You may think, well, no, it works. Separation of powers works. I mean, you have the, the executive, you have the legislative, and you have the judicial. They're separate, and it works. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Uh, not really, if you think about it. And there's a reason why. And there's just one. So it's real simple. But you really have to think on it and look real long and hard at the, the, the government to really understand why that is. And for those of you in countries outside the United States and perhaps Europe or elsewhere, you guys have a different kind of problem. Because the structure of your government's a little bit different. Not to mention if you're, if you're in the European Union, it's, it's, it's convoluted even to another degree. But understand that this, this same general idea applies to you also. And you need to be very ca cautious of this thing that Benjamin Franklin is talking about here. And when it comes to being the parliament being dependent on the central authority, and here's why. Quote, so much so that I begin to think a parliament here of little use to the people. For since a parliament is always to do as a ministry would have it, why should we not be governed by the ministry in the first instance? End quote. So if the parliament or the legislature or the congress is not independent, why in the world don't we just be governed by the ministry? In other words, he's saying by King George III, by a dictator. Why don't we just have the iron fist of the dictator? I mean, think, you know... Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Why not? Why not like North Korea today? It'd be a lot cheaper, right? As it'd be a lot simpler, as Benjamin Franklin articulates here. Quote, They could afford to govern us cheaper. The Parliament, being a very expensive machine that requires a vast deal of oiling and greasing at the people's charge, for they finally pay all the enormous salaries of places, the pensions, and the bribes now by custom become necessary to induce the members to vote according to their consciences, end quote. Oh, yes. This uh, thing that people call democracy, this quote-unquote democracy that everybody's always talking about, very expensive to pay all those bribes and that corruption. Very expensive. I mean, corruption schemes and bribery is a very expensive proposition, always. So why not just be governed by the dictator, the central power? And isn't it interesting how the more corrupt a legislature becomes, the more bribes become a, a way of life for those people. The closer and closer a country becomes to being governed by a dictator and basically nullifying the legislature. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like Benjamin Franklin is predicting a roadmap for government to follow. Not a good one, a bad one. And not because he wants it to be this way, but because he simply observes as a fact what is happening before his eyes. So Benjamin Franklin sees something here that we need to pay attention to in regard to what is happening in 1774 and 75. But again, because we know that history repeats itself and because we understand that the shadow of the British Empire is still here today, we have to pay attention to this right now as I speak. Because if we don't be very careful, this thing will happen again. And we don't want that. What do we want? Well, most of us in the United States, I would suspect, really just want the Bill of Rights. And we want that Constitution to be affected from one end of the country to the next, from coast to coast, from border to border, and everywhere in between. And for those of you elsewhere in the world, uh, perhaps you want to uh, 
just have your your rights as articulated in your national documents honored and respected, as they should be. I think that's what most of us want. So if we want that, and we want to prevent this kind of thing that Benjamin Franklin is articulating here, the very first thing that we need to understand is that this can happen, it's bad, and we need to be watchful of it and make sure that it doesn't happen. So if we have a situation where a parliament, a legislature, a congress is not independent of the central power, then... That's 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 a surefire sign that we have ourselves a bit of a problem here, as Benjamin Franklin would describe it, right here in this paragraph that we just read. This is a really big deal. Benjamin Franklin is trying to draw your attention to this issue. He's trying to paint you a picture here that you need to pay attention to. Don't ignore it. Don't think that it can't happen here. And by here, I mean 2022, not just here in the United States, but anywhere. But here in our time. It could happen. 10,000 years from now, this thing, same kind of stuff is going to be going on. I've said that before. It, it just because it never ends. There's always this kind of creep, this legislative creep, this political creep, slowly crawling in this same direction. It always crawls in this direction. And you got to stamp this kind of crap out before it gets too bad. You really do. And, you know, here, here's, a, here's a prime example. It's something to talk about, at least, you know. I'll read this part again. Quote, Parliament being a very expensive machine that requires a vast deal of oiling and greasing at the people's charge, for they finally pay all the enormous salaries of places, the pensions, and the bribes, end quote. Now, I've described this before, and some folks may think I'm out of my depth, but frankly speaking, I'm not. The, in the United States, and you folks elsewhere in the world, I want you to cast a glance to your parliament, whatever that is, and, and try to find the same examples of what I'm talking about here in the United States. These people in Congress in the United States, there's 535 of them again, plus the delegates, and those people are—you ever listen to those delegates speak? Half of them are bats, not crazy. You know, a fun example into— uh, the exploration of the insanity of an individual is to listen to some of the delegates talk. But anyway, uh, that may be a discussion for another time. Some folks out there may be wondering, who are these delegates you talk about? Well, I'll, I'll talk about that another time. But these people live a certain kind of life, and it looks very different from the life that you and I live. And most of the time, it's not because they were really wealthy when they went into power in the United States Congress. Most of the time, it's because they became very wealthy while they were there. Now, how in the world did that happen? I mean, sure, they, they get a respectable salary. Right now, it's roughly $170,000 a year. But is that the makings of a decamillionaire? You know, somebody who lives in a $20 million house or something like that? Probably not. So how did they do it? Quote, At the people's charge, for they finally pay all the enormous salaries of places, the pensions, and the bribes, now by custom become necessary to induce the members to vote according to their consciences, end quote. That's how they did it. Now, some people don't want to hear that. Some people don't want to admit it. But that's the way that it is. And we hear, we hear stories about that. I'm not going to go over the stories because this is not a news podcast. But if you just read the news over the last five years, the news talks about it all the time as being fact. Not conjecture, not speculation, but fact in various ways. They don't call it bribes. They call it something else, but they talk about it as fact. And the enormous salaries and the pensions and so on and so forth, they talk about it as fact. It is what it is. This isn't me. This isn't conspiracy theory. This is just reality. So, again, and why, do, why am I talking about this now? Because, you know, again, this is not a modern history podcast. I'm trying to tell you. History repeats itself, and Benjamin Franklin was not an idiot. 
He was very intelligent, and these things that he was talking about back then are very applicable to us today. So it gets to the reason why we listen to a podcast like this. This isn't just a entertainment podcast, you know, So for people who are history enthusiasts. This is to show you that history is valuable. If you want to learn the lessons of the people who came before us, I said it earlier in this episode, part of the reason why I study history anyway is to pay respect to the people who suffered before I was ever even born, so that I can learn the lessons of their life, so that I don't have to repeat them and make the same mistakes again, so that whole societies and whole countries don't have to make the same mistakes again. I mean, do you know how much torture and suffering could be avoided if we just studied history and listened to it? It's a lot, and I would like us to get to it. I would love society to get to a point where we can actually do that. Uh, end, the, end the suffering and the screaming and the torture uh, simply because we actually listen to history. Wouldn't that be an accomplishment? That, that's probably the, the ultimate accomplishment of mankind, if we can achieve that. Just that one thing. That would probably be the greatest accomplishment in the history of man. But it's so elusive. It's so difficult to get to. And for no other reason than people find it difficult to crack open a history book. Isn't that interesting? Let us continue with this final paragraph. Quote, My situation here is thought by many to be a little hazardous. For that if by some accident the troops and people of New England should, become, should come to blows, I should probably be taken up, the ministerial people affecting everywhere, to represent me as the cause of all the misunderstanding. And I have been frequently cautioned to secure my papers and by some advised to withdraw. But I venture to say, stay in compliance with the wish of others till the result of Congress arrives since they suppose my being here might on that occasion be of use, and I confide in my innocence that the worst which can happen to me will be an imprisonment on suspicion, though that is a thing I should much desire to avoid, as it may be expensive and vexatious, as well as dangerous to my health. With great respect and esteem, I am ever, dear sir, Benjamin Franklin, end quote. So Franklin is putting himself in jeopardy here. He's putting himself at risk. So again, I, I, I grow tired of this sentiment that the Founding Fathers were just a bunch of rich, elitist, never took a chance in their life, sent other people in to hazard the cause of liberty so that they could benefit from not paying their taxes, etc., etc. It's all a bunch of crap. People who say things like that are people who are uneducated and dim-witted. I'm sorry to say. Because Benjamin Franklin here is obviously taking a great risk in staying in London. If he were most concerned about his safety and his security, the very first thing he would do is pack up his papers and get the heck out of town. I mean, he'd get the heck out of Dodge, like we say today. Uh, he wouldn't hesitate. I mean, you'd see nothing but, you know, this man just running through the streets of London trying to get to a boat as fast as he possibly could. But instead, he stays. And why did he stay? Quote, I venture to stay in compliance with the wish of others till the result of the Congress arrives, since they suppose my being here might on that occasion be of use, end quote. So the people in Congress think that his presence there is of some use. So he stays. He did it because he, effectively his country asked him to. His people asked him to. So he risks imprisonment, or possibly worse, simply in service of this cause that he represents there in London. Isn't that interesting? A man who took risks along with the rest of them. They all risked, you know, imprisonment and death in some form or another, but certainly Benjamin Franklin was at a much greater risk because he was in London, surrounded by the authority of the British crown. 
at this particular time. Now he does in he does shortly hereafter return to the colonies, but for this time for for now he's in London and perpetually in jeopardy of imprisonment because of this problem between the uh, the Greater British Empire, specifically the government of the British Empire and the uh, the American colonies. So that's the letters that we had for today. And let us go into the concluding remarks of this episode in the next section. Let's do that right now. All right, so there's some more Benjamin Franklin, wisdom from Benjamin Franklin that we uh, that we can all benefit from. And I, I know that I have benefited greatly from the wisdom of that man and from the wisdom of Mr. Adams and others, George Washington, etc. And some, some may wonder why it is that I spend about half of any given episode, not all the time, but some of the time, talking about how this history relates to us today. And I, you know, I, I wonder sometimes myself why I get passionate about it, and the, the answer is really actually quite obvious. For those of us who study a lot of history and are history enthusiasts, we, we understand on some basic level the suffering that people have had to go through in times past, because we read about it a lot, because we look at pictures of it, and we listen to the testimony of it, and it's painful to listen to, which is why most people won't study it, which is why most people don't listen to it, which is how history gets lost, because it's painful in many cases to listen to the stories. I'll give you an example of that. I did an episode, when I was doing my Patreon podcast, I did an episode on World War II specifically about Japan, exclusively, really. It was just about the Japanese and World War II. And I articulated some of the absolute nightmares that that empire unleashed on the world, namely in China, for example. And I'm not exactly a big fan of China today, but what I definitely am not is a proponent of that kind of misery being inflicted on any population of people, regardless of who they are. I don't, um, I don't tolerate it well. And I, you know, to do that episode of the podcast, and honestly, I knew the stories from times past, but to do that episode of that particular podcast... I had to go back and I had to look at the pictures and I had to read the stories again. And some people, you know, there are people out there who are callous and can read that kind of stuff and, and look at those pictures and just be fine. They, they almost get some personal gratification from it. And I'm not making that up. Somebody out there is going to be like, oh my gosh, Roman, are you trying to say that people actually get per- personal satisfaction from watching people get tortured? Yes. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, there are some sick people out there in the world, but I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like that. I don't, I don't have this kind of detachment that some people have. Uh, when I see things like that, it's painful for me to, to, to look at because it's real. It's not a movie. It's not a TV show. And I'm very, very clear about the differences between the two. And people like us, people like you and me, uh, if you're a history enthusiast, we don't ever want to see that kind of thing happen again. Because we know how horrible it is. And we don't ever want to see anything like what happened in 1775 happen again. If it can be avoided. Now, the thing about 1775 is, is it had to happen. Those people who defended themselves against the British military, they did the right thing. They didn't do anything wrong. What I mean when I say we don't want to see that happen again is I mean we don't want to see a military sent out against its people to steal their property and murder them. That's what we don't want to see. Now, if that does happen, I'll tell you what I do want to see, and that is to see exactly what those farmers, those shopkeepers, and lawyers, and whoever else that stood up on 1775, I want to see them do that again. That's what I do want to see. 
but I don't want it to have to come to that. So I do spend a lot of time on this podcast trying to articulate that it can happen, and that the same kind of elements that were at work in 1775, they're at work today, because they always are. It never stops. And now it ebbs and it flows a little bit, and it, it comes in varying degrees. Sometimes it's very intense, and sometimes it's not. But it's important to keep an eye on it. And that's why I don't like attacks on the Bill of Rights to the United States Constitution. It's not just sacred American law. They are ancient rights that belong to the people inherently. They belong to all people everywhere in their respective countries. The people of... I wonder if I'm going to step on some toes by saying this. I don't know. But the people of, the, of Great Britain today... And I use Great Britain because of, obviously, what we're talking about, British Empire, the colonies, etc. But the people of the British Empire today, or the, excuse me, Great Britain today, they have those same rights articulated in the Bill of Rights. They have them. They're theirs. They own them. The First Amendment, Second Amendment, Third Amendment, Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, Seventh, Eighth, Ninth, Tenth. It's all there. They have it. It's, they're theirs. If they want them. Because they're natural. They belong to the people. The government may or may not recognize them in Great Britain, and in some cases they don't. But I don't care. They belong to the people, and the people have a right to them. And if they want them, they 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 should stand up and they should speak. They should speak to that effect. Maybe they don't want them. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. Uh, I'm not going to try to get in the middle of Great Britain, its people, and its government. But I'm just trying to make a point. It's not just you know the United States by law we have those rights. Those rights exist from forever. They're simply recognized in the Constitution by the founding fathers as being a reality. The Founding Fathers described those rights as self-evident, or originally sacred and undeniable, is how they might articulate that in some cases. Sacred and undeniable. So there we have it, folks. You know, it's a, it's, you know, we do spend a lot of time talking about this relationship between people and government, not just in 1774 and 75, but today, so that we understand history does repeat itself. We don't want some history to repeat itself. That's the whole point is we, you know, while history repeats itself, we don't want it to in a lot of cases. I certainly don't want it to. I don't want, uh, I don't want, you know, like what happened in World War II to happen again. Uh, that was a terrible time in American, or excuse me, in world history. Terrible time in history. Uh, I think we'd all, you know, do well to try to avoid that kind of thing in the future. So, you know, World War, somebody who's doing a World War II podcast might talk about things that are happening today that are similar to back then that could kick off another World War II. You know, back then it was Germany and the Sudetenland. And the and Danzig and the you know this connection between East Prussia, the Danzig corridor, I think is what that was referred to, and this try this trying to you know take parts of Poland back to reconnect with East Prussia, this that and the other thing, territorial acquisitions, Austria, all those things. Do we see anything like that today? Absolutely, we do. I would articulate that Taiwan is really just Sudetenland, 1938, all over again. Now that's a controversial thing to say, but it's the same concept in my opinion. And this conflict, you know, that's, you know, that's where it began. And the Sudetenland was basically just given to Germany. But then what happened? What happened, what happened to, to after that? Was that the end of the territorial acquisitions by Germany? It wasn't. Was that the end of the aggression? It wasn't. Was that the end of the nightmare? It wasn't. So if you think that Taiwan is going to be the end of this thing in China, you're delusional. Because history repeats itself, and it just so happens that today, the Sudetenland is not located in Czechoslovakia. It's located in a place called Taiwan. And Germany is not located in Central Europe. It's located in Eastern Asia. 
Now, if a World War II history podcast is doing its job, it will tell you that story. But chances are you probably haven't heard it articulated quite like that before, have you? But that's exactly what it is. Believe me, and mark my words, that is exactly what it is. If I'm right, and history repeats itself, that's exactly what's going to happen. Now, if you want to try to prevent history from repeating itself, what you'll do is you'll try to prevent the Sudetenland disaster and catastrophe from happening the same way it happened back in the 1930s. But, that's just my opinion. And that's why, that's why you have to talk about modern context in relation to this history, because... These things happen over and over and over and over again. And you have to be mindful of it, and you have to be watchful of it. You know, And actually, there was a concern about that in 1990, in 1991, the Gulf War. The, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait being uh, Germany all over again. Germany, re, Germany revisited. Concerned about this territorial acquisition, that Kuwait was not the end of it. It was basically the Sudetenland. And Saudi Arabia was uh, the Poland of sorts. And with our allies in the region and in Europe was move in and prevent that thing from growing bigger and getting out of control. Is that the right thing to do? In my opinion, yes, it was. And I'm not the only one who thinks so. So with that little extra bonus material, uh, no extra charge for that, by the way. I don't, I don't charge extra for the uh, World War II, uh, you know, references to modern day, uh, whether it be uh, Iraq and Kuwait in 1991 or whether it's China and Taiwan today. Those are uh, free bonus features of this podcast. I hope you enjoy. And with, uh, you know, all of that going on, uh, I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode specifically, and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode of this podcast. And with all that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you. <laughs>